Welcome back to Pod is a Woman. I'm Alejandra. I'm Darian. And I'm Johanna. And there is a lot going on right now. So let's get right to it. What's on people's minds? Well, did you guys see Netflix has been responding to a storm of criticism about a film, Cuties? (laughs) So I, I don't know if you saw it. Republican Senator Ted Cruz of Texas and Democrat... The Democratic Representative Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii are both criticizing the film. So Senator Cruz actually asked the Justice Department to investigate Netflix on a potential charge of production and distribution of child pornography. While Congresswoman Gabbard said Netflix is complicit in the sex trafficking trade. So we have to discuss cuties. Who's seen it? I watched it last night because I wanted to share some thoughts with you guys, but I wanted to make sure to like really see what everyone was talking about because it seems like people feel very strongly about this, but it doesn't sound like people are seeing the same movie by the way they're commenting, right? Some people are like, this is child pornography. Some people are, you know, saying it's, it's a social commentary. So I'm curious who else has seen it and what you guys feel. Well, the thing about it is, and I personally have not seen it, and there are a host of reasons, including being very busy and getting the girls back to school, but there's a part of me that is just very bothered by even watching the trailer and seeing sort of the gyrating of young girls wearing very, like being very scantily clothed. And I understand that there is a social commentary to it with regard to the main character and how she is trying to establish herself as a young woman, young girl even, and how she has her family's religion and how that plays a role in her development. But in watching the trailer, I made the mistake of going through the comments. And I think the the one on YouTube has like, <laughs> yeah, haven't you learned? You never <laughs> read <laughs> comments. Don't ever read the comments <laughs> exactly. in general, in life, in cuties and everything. Uh, no, but it's interesting because when this debuted in Sundance in January, there actually wasn't a big ruckus about it. And so what the filmmaker has said, this, uh, who was a woman, is that the way that this film was marketed on Netflix had a lot to do with it. And after watching the film, I have to agree with that. Again, this is right now I'm just talking about the initial uproar because I have other thoughts on the actual content. Okay. But when you see the photos that were initially running with this, it was in this scene where they're performing and they're very scantily clad and they're kind of in various positions of twerking, you know, and that was the still image that marketed the film. But it wasn't the initial Um, photos from the initial film. No, that wasn't initially how the film was marketed. And to your point, the the film really does explore this coming of age that I know, I mean, all of us can speak of when you're in those early kind of preteen, teen years and you're discovering and negotiating what your femininity looks like because there are those opposing images that are presented in the film of being a good girl or being the one that gets all those likes and that's validated in a different way. So I think that topic is really interesting to explore, but where it got fuzzy for me, and Johanna, I want to hear what your reaction to this was, was in the film, the camera tends to pan and do some close-ups and in their bodies in a way that seemed to blur the line between social commentary and actually kind of sensationalizing this sexualization. And again, when you're, it's a social commentary type of film, there's a fine line between actually doing the thing that you're commenting on, right? 
Yeah. Well, and so I, I was going to say, too, to Darian, I can understand your perspective having watched the trailer, and it is really hard to watch. But that is actually the reason why I would say it is something to watch. And I did watch it. I also, Alejandra and I were talking, we wanted to watch this um, because of the uproar. But also director Maimana Ducore has said that her goal was to show the different models of femininity and the objectification that we see of young girls. And this is not on Netflix primarily. It's actually primarily on YouTube, right? And it's right. where our kids are getting their content very often. And so she talks about and specifically asks the question, isn't objectification also another form of oppression? And I think that's a question that women have been asking for a long time. And so I really wanted to talk to you guys about it, especially Darian raising two young girls, because I think our girls are going to see these images, whether they see them on Netflix or not. Right. Right. And, you know, both of my girls are in gymnastics and they're in ballet. And I think so often to this idea of the over-sexualization of black and brown young women and how they are almost not allowed to have a childhood because it comes so quickly upon them. I remember being hit on as an 11-year-old or a 12-year-old by an older person and feeling very uncomfortable. And I'm trying to protect the girls for as long as I possibly can and give them the opportunity to have a childhood where they do get to explore and they get to grow into their own femininity, but also their own version of what femininity is. Dylan is very tomboyish, and wants to be a scuba diving princess. So there are differences in how they are coming into their own and into their own personality. And I just feel like in watching that, that is what disturbed me the most is that this girl is taken from and her family, from what I understand, is portrayed as almost the villain in this, that they are, you know, trying to keep her under control and they're so strict in the way that she's being brought up. And so that's where I lost something. It's a little bit more complicated. Yeah, it is. But well, you should watch the film because it is more complicated in the sense of like the kind of the, the performance of femininity that she's caught mm -hmm. between. And I'd argue that neither is necessarily one that is positive for her. But here's the thing. We're talking about critiquing this culture and this experience, right? And how important that is. And then the blurring the line of the film itself being an example of it. So there's, there were moments where it kind of teetered at that edge because I'd argue we need films that talk about this for the very reason we're talking about it. We Agreed. need films that explore this dichotomy and this kind of negotiation that young women go through, especially now in a social media age. I cannot imagine if there was social media when I was going through high school oh and I was God, going no. through my own version. Oh. I mean, I... <laughs> I, I literally remember one of my mom's friend's boyfriends hitting on me when I was a child and how uncomfortable that was. Like you, you are pelted with this experience that kind of, that kind of ex shows you how you're seen even before you see yourself that way. And I don't know about you, Alejandra, but I, it, I, it felt uncomfortable because it felt familiar. And to that extent, I started thinking about when I didn't have the confidence that I have now as a young woman, and when you're trying to explore friendships and you're getting into a place where you're pulled in all these different directions, and I thought, you know, that was so 
powerful because I think we need to have a true, honest conversation with young girls about what confidence looks like and how they can be the most confident version of themselves. And to that end, I thought it was interesting that some of the very Republican leaders who are calling out this film have sexualized women in Congress, including AOC or Nancy Pelosi. And we didn't call out good boys, which, you know, had the same age of actors, young boys. They had dildos. They had a pedophile like come buy a sex doll they had like it was in humor this was not humorous it was not meant to be humorous it was meant to be serious and I think it's a serious issue that we need to address and so I'm kind of appalled by the rhetoric on both sides without seeing it well the thing about the rhetoric on both sides is that none of the people who are talking about it have admitted to actually seeing it. And I think that that is where I don't really feel as comfortable commenting because all I've seen is the trailer. And the trailer is so sensationalized that it's hard to get past it. And until you actually see it, I'm not sure that you can weigh in. Well, I do think that these are conversations we have to have. And art, a lot of times, brings these issues to the forefront. I do think that it being politicized is not helping pull the conversation forward about what is a very real experience that young girls are having right now. But again, I think it's a fair debate about how that art is portrayed and how it's filmed in order to not become the object of which it's commenting on. So I want to wish you guys a happy National Hispanic Heritage Month, also known as Latinx Heritage Month or Latino Heritage Month, depending on how it is you want to refer to it, which is a perfect example of how not monolithic the Latino community is and the way we like to refer to ourselves. But this is a great time to talk about our culture and contributions to the country. But we're also kind of the topic on everyone's mind when we're looking at polling of Donald Trump doing well with Hispanics in Florida, which is, you know, very um, predominantly Cuban American and Venezuelan American, but you're seeing Pence rolling up to a Latinos for Trump event in Miami. You're seeing them, the Trump campaign investing heavily in the Miami Fort Lauderdale media market, lots of Spanish language ads. So people are really going hard at Latinos right now, but this tends to happen every election cycle. Folks start really paying a lot of attention to voters of color and Latinos are no stranger to being courted in this way every election. So I wanted to chat about this with you guys and how sincere you see this recent push. Well, how can you not see it as pandering? I hear Trump saying, my Latinos, I love my Latinos. I always have known how great you are. And then you think about when he was riding down on that escalator talking about how they are rapists and animals and saying some of the worst things about a culture that he he knows nothing about. So I would put that question on you. How do you feel about this? Is this not pandering? I see it. Definitely is pandering and definitely very cynically. You know, our our community has been disrespected over and over and over again and scapegoated in a way that is is frankly dangerous. And we're seeing that going on. I mean, there was a, a story that I just read about how there's reports now that there's been a gynecologist who has been um, doing forced hysterectomies yes. on women yes. at, at yeah, ICE I detention centers. Well. And the the yeah, lack of horrendous. Of, 
it's horrific. Mm -hmm. And so the way that we're seeing, you know, women's bodies, women of color's bodies um, treated like like animals, but he has used that terminology to refer to Latinos, animals and rapists and so on. So how can you have it both ways? The Biden campaign's also doing a lot to try to make sure that people are at the table who are sincerely talking to this community. They recently promoted one of our friends from the White House, Julie Chavez Rodriguez, to be deputy campaign manager. She is the granddaughter of civil rights leader, icon, farm worker activist, Cesar Chavez. And so you're seeing that these campaigns are taking different tactics, right, to show how serious they are about this vote. But again, we need to see real outreach and engagement around the issues that matter to our community, not just like tacos for Trump. So I think it's really interesting as Trump is courting this Latino vote, because in 2016, he only got what, 26% of Latino voters to vote for him. And now even in places like Phoenix, 62% of voters that are that identify as Latino say that they are going to vote for Biden. So how do they make the right steps to start really bringing over in an authentic way, if that's even possible for the Trump campaign? How do they start actually being able to court Latino voters? I think the answer is, you know, showing up, really consistent engagement, sincere engagement with the community. I think, you know, you saw Kamala Harris show up in Doral in South Florida this past week. I know that there's a lot of efforts in the Biden campaign to really talk to this community where they're at about the issues that matter to them. This was something I worked on a lot in the White House when I was deputy director of Hispanic media and also traveling a lot of times, Johanna, with press advance to the G20 in Mexico and also to the North American Leader Summit, reminding folks who is really on their side, not just who is talking to them right before the campaign because they see a way to pick off votes in a very important state, but who has not been vilifying your community and continuing to honestly contribute to violence against your community on a daily basis when we're looking at what's going on in ICE detention camps. Well, and to your point, Alejandra, the Latino population is so diverse, right? And we saw that with Summit of Americas. It's interesting to me because we talked about Florida a little bit and, you know, the Venezuelan, you know, background. And I remember encountering Hugo Chavez at a Summit of Americas. And I remember he had his paparazzi pack. He had only people who loved him around him. And so when I see Donald Trump, And I see him, you know, call someone, you know, my Latino supporter or my African-American supporter. Well, he does believe that they are his supporters until they say something against him. And that to me is that's more like a dictator. That's not a democracy. And so to me, it's like I hope that the Biden campaign goes hard at Trump's dictator tendencies to try to win back you know, a lot of the population that will not be okay with that, especially, you know, I understand the charge of socialism, but Joe Biden is not going to make this a socialist country. And Donald Trump is a dictator. And I have a problem with the my moniker because we are nobody's, we are nobody's Latinos. We are nobody's playthings. We are nobody's pawns. You know, we are a community that, again, it's Hispanic Heritage Month that has contributed so much to this country and that has seen our contributions, past and current, be completely wiped away or minimized. And so talk to us with respect, and then, you know, we'll decide how we feel 
Well, I don't know if you guys saw, but Greg Cheadle, who was the guy who Trump called out as my African-American, is no longer supporting him. So I think that his history of calling someone my supporter doesn't necessarily bode well. Well, if you look at the polling numbers from across the country, it doesn't look like Latinos are supporting him either. No one should take our vote for a given. Well, as we talk about fall and the return to school, which is driving me a little bit crazy, one thing that is bringing me joy is the return of the NFL. I'm a huge football fan and a diehard Bears fan, so I was really excited to see my team take the field um, this past Sunday. But we did see on Thursday the NFL season opener take place with the Kansas City Chiefs taking on the Houston, Texas. And neither team was on the field for Lift Every Voice and Sing, which is also known as the Black National Anthem, nor were they on the field for the National Anthem. But as a sign of unity amongst the teams, the players linked arms at midfield for a moment of silence and to show solidarity against racism and social injustice. And for that, they were booed. And I just have to think if taking a knee isn't okay and not coming out for the national anthem isn't okay, if linking arms with your fellow teammates and teams from the opposing team isn't okay, then what is the best way to take a stand for social justice? You know, I think my husband's the sports guy in our family, but early in our marriage, we bought the photo of uh, Jesse Owens at the Olympics when, of course, Hitler was in Germany and the Olympics were in Germany and you had everyone doing Hail Hitler and yet Jesse Owens won and he's saluting at the top of um, having won the gold medal. And I think there's a long history of athletes showing us what's right through action. And I wish that people would understand that this is another moment where athletes are uniting for what is right. And when you look at that photo historically, now that we have the 1936 photo on our wall, you know, you see all of the atrocities there. Not only Hitler and, you know, what they, what happened in Germany, but also the Korean who was forced to run for Japan. And there's a lot of, you know, like awful politics that affects sports. And when you see the athletes standing for what's right, that is what's right about sports, Olympics, the NFL, everything. I just don't get where people's heads are at because we're in the middle of a pandemic and these athletes are putting their health on the line. They're um, they're playing these games. You know, we were talking about how they're not in this bubble like the NBA is. So they're actually like exposing themselves, potentially their families, and they're taking a stand for something that's important to them. And the disrespect of these fans on so many different levels of what, what they're doing, you know, and they're actual as professional athletes, but of their personhood, right? And that's exactly right. This is more than a game. This is who they are every single day. This is the livelihood of their families. It goes back to their, you know, ancestry. You look at Naomi Osaka, who just won the 2020 U.S. Open. And for every match that she had, for all seven matches, she had a different mask with the name of someone who was killed due to police brutality. And so many people questioned that. A reporter questioned what message she was trying to send. And her 
response back to him was, well, what message did you receive? And later she goes on, she thanks her ancestors. She says, I would like to thank my ancestors because every time I remember their blood runs through my veins, I am reminded that I cannot lose. She is proud of her ancestors. Well, she has become very, very vocal. I mean, her wearing those masks wasn't a surprise. And no. you know, she has had a different reaction from folks because she's been very vocal on social media about racial justice, about Black Lives Matter. And you're seeing a new generation of athletes here that don't really care. So I was going to ask you, Darian, about who the fans are that are booing because, you know, know. if that uh, I see the Kansas City uh, story... Does it say it in it there? It doesn't no? say if they're doesn't say. or not. So, yeah. See, because I just, I wonder, you know, clearly there's a lot of appetite for people to go to these games, right? And I've seen sometimes where money gets rewarded, especially when they're in need of money for the games. So I wonder if the fans aren't a bunch of donors. And then it's kind of like indicative of the disconnect in the country because I think if you see the people who are out in the streets who are standing up for justice um, there's probably more people who are with them than who are against them and I worry about that for our country love to see the NFL do something similar to what the NBA is doing to really stand behind their athletes and create space for real systemic change around these issues Well, we see that NFL, in some cases, people feel like they haven't gone far enough because of what the NBA has done. But it took the players stepping up and not playing in those games to shake up things and make some real change because they were affecting the pocketbooks. Darian, do you think it's harder because there just frankly are just so many more players on an NFL team to get people to make a stand as one group? I don't think so. And I don't know the business behind it. So I can't really speak on that. But I think that everyone is making an effort. There are different levels of effort and different levels of activism. And because on a very large football team, you're right, there's going to be one or two, maybe five star players. But on an NBA team, almost every player is a star and you know every player's name that's on the court. And in in a lot of cases with the NFL, you don't know every player that's on the team. I think we have a long way to go back to uh, the days where, you know, Jesse Owens was able to stand up for what's right from America. I'm glad to also see young women like Naomi Osaka taking this stand um, unapologetically. And it doesn't feel like it feels like we've gone so far from where Colin Kaepernick put his entire career on the line so bravely in order to make this stand. And now you're seeing somebody who just wins the U.S. Open taking a stand, literally seven stands all at once. And so I applaud her for that. And I I do think that we're making progress, but we need fans to also step up too. We need fans and we need, at the end of the day, the NFL ownership when we talk about how they are trying to make steps to be more anti-racist. Colin Kaepernick still isn't on a football team. Oh, and while, I know. while the commissioner has been vocal in saying they should have listened to him in the first place, it doesn't turn around and make that sort of change because he's not playing. So how about we start off with let's get the NFL to open all of their football arenas to be polling locations. <laughs> that would be a good next step. Uh, yes, Absolutely.
So we're all in different parts of the country. You know, I'm I'm in Pasadena. Johanna, you're in Glendale. Darian's in Chicago. So for those of us in Pasadena and Glendale, uh, I mean, I don't know about you, but my eyes have been burning. I have been coughing. In fact, I'm trying to turn away from this mic when I cough right now. The air quality literally right now, I just checked it, is in the unhealthy red range 195 in Pasadena because of all the fires. And look, the the top story isn't the air quality. It's what's happening in our environment. It's about all the people on the front lines who are trying to fight these fires, all the people who are losing their homes. But when we're talking about a population that really is on the front line, it is our inmate population in California. There are 1,354 inmate firefighters battling our fires this year. But Governor Newsom just took a big stand to do something that is very, very overdue and frankly, the right thing to do, which is he signed a bill. It's AB 2147 last week that reforms California's inmate firefighter program and paves a way for inmates who've worked on the front line of fighting fires when they're incarcerated to be able to work as firefighters once they've completed their prison time. The fact that Folks were being paid a little bit more than a dollar a day to be on the front line of fires and getting all this experience. And then when they were released, that they weren't able to actually become professional firefighters is such a travesty and goes against everything about rehabilitation that we talk about with our criminal justice system. So this was really great news and seemed to be very universally lauded on social media, again, as something that was overdue and the right thing to do. What are you guys' thoughts on it? Well, I'm also sitting in the smoke. It was so smoke-filled all weekend, we stayed inside, and that is unusual in Southern California. That is not the reason why you live in Southern California. So, you know, it is an unusual experience, um, even worse than years past, to have ash literally blowing in your, you know, face when you walk out the door. You know, I think that we need more firefighters, right? And we've got this uh, group of people who are already trained. So it seems like the best step to get people in the door. You know, LA does an interesting thing, Alejandra. Um, They also train high school students on fighting fires. And I think the problem is we're seeing more and more fires. And so we need more and more firefighters to fight it, right? And so unfortunately, what we're also seeing is this intersection of COVID and these fires. And it's what we're seeing across the country in almost every aspect of life. But with this specific, you know, camp conservation program, they have released, they have done an early release of nearly 17,000 inmates. So there there are 600 fewer inmates taking part in these firefighting activities. And Mm -hmm. so there's a shortage of this prison community to help fight fires. And then you're also looking at a prison community where there's not a lot of social distancing and not a lot of precautions against COVID like hand washing. And then you're taking them from the jail to fight these fires. So they could already be sick having been infected inside of the prison and then come out and be at more risk because the smoke inhalation makes them, you know, at a greater, you know, risk of getting sick. And so it's a really hard place to be, I think. Well, and it's a question of like, Okay, so folks are good enough to fight our fires when they're incarcerated, but not when they get out. You know, that that does not sit right with me. And you're looking at how our prison population is used 
as cheap labor. But then when they're released, their access to jobs and opportunities is pretty non-existent. You know, every time I move, I use a certain moving company here in LA. And to anyone who's listening now that is in LA, I highly recommend it. It's operated by the Delancey Street Foundation. And so all of the movers that work with this moving company are all recently released from prison and are in a rehabilitation program. And there again, this is a part of their employment where they're able to get this experience. A lot of them, the only kind of job that they are able to get. On a side note, the most careful, gracious, professional movers I have ever used in my entire life. But this just goes to show you like how few options there are. Yeah, no, I think the prison entrepreneurship programs have actually been a bipartisan program that's helped, you know, across the country. So I'm glad I agree, Alejandra. I'm glad to see more firefighters, more firefighters getting paid, more firefighters getting opportunity. But I really wish that there were less fires. I know next week we're actually talking to Gina McCarthy, which I'm really excited about because she was the 13th administrator for the Environmental Protection Agency under President Obama. But she served in both Republican and Democratic administrations and has a lot of knowledge about climate change, which I'm sure you guys saw. Donald Trump doesn't believe the science, but it turns out almost all scientists, including NOAA, keep warning us about climate change. So much like COVID, maybe we should pay attention. Maybe, and hopefully she'll give us some really good insight and we'll actually be listening to the professionals instead of Donald Trump. Yes, I'm really excited to hear what she has to say, especially in the environment that we're in right now, because like everyone else who was circulating those orange um, photos of San Francisco, yeah, of a red sun and all of that, I think it made a lot of people sit up straight in their chair and be like, okay, maybe we do want to talk about climate change. Can I tell you a story? Hugh, my son, was like on a Zoom with his whole class. And he's like, it's the apocalypse. We can't go outside. We have so much smoke. And then all of a sudden, Mr. Mario, who's one of the aides, like jumps on and he's like, hello. (laughs) What does it mean that like kids Hugh's age? How old is Hugh? Eight years old. Okay, the eight-year-old kids say things like it's the apocalypse. I mean, I don't know if that was a word in my uh, uh, vernacular when I was eight years old, but apparently this year has brought it out in people. 2020. A lot of new words for kids. Their vocabulary is much different than ours was when we were that age. It's clear that our POTUS of the week needs to go to Naomi Osaka, who we already talked about, is um, taking a stand for social justice, and we applaud her for everything that she's doing. Absolutely. And our shout out of the week is someone that you might not know, but hopefully you'll hear more about soon. It's Michelle Wu. She's a 35-year-old Taiwanese-American city councilor and the first woman of color to serve as Boston City Council president. She announced this week that she's running for the mayor of Boston. In this uphill fight, she'll be taking on a fellow Democrat, Marty Walsh. The incumbent mayor is seeking a third term, and she's running on a platform to solve housing inequality and public transportation and increase efforts around police reform and to build a Green New Deal. We wish her the best of luck. As always, be sure to follow on social media, and we'd love to hear from you at beapodis at gmail.com. We're really excited to have Gina McCarthy, former EPA administrator under Barack Obama next week. So hopefully you'll join us then. And in the meantime, have a good one. Be well.